Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with literature easy, like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. So let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering from this week. First off, we had managing low-velocity gunshot wounds to the extremities. Then, probably the best evidence to date on the nephrotoxicity of IV contrast. After that, the best way to scan for kidney stones. Then, the safety of burst-dose steroids in kiddos. And finally, ketamine and post-intubation hypotension. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the well-mannered Bo Stubblefield, Sam Parnell, and Clay Smith. So the first article summarized this week was the management of civilian low-velocity gunshot injuries to an extremity out of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Now, gunshot wound management has come a really long way since the days of, you know, round bullets coming out of muskets. So unfortunately, the number of gunshot wounds that happen in the U.S. is increasing, and so managing these wounds is an unfortunate reality that many have to deal with on a regular basis. So despite the regularity of these injuries, the exact management of many of them is largely up to the individual. At least that's the case when it comes to non-serious injuries to the extremities. That said, there's not no data either, so let's see what data there is to help inform at least some of your decisions. Your initial management is going to be according to the ATLS standards. There's no change to the general approach there. And then, unless obviously not the case, then any bullet wound should be considered an entrance site, with the number of wounds being equal to the number of expected retained bullets. The people in CSI Miami might be able to spot an exit and entry wound from across the room, but in real life it's just not that clear cut, so it's best just to assume the worst. And before getting any x-rays to determine which and how many retained bullets there might actually be, it's good to try to put in entry markers that are metal just for reference as to where the wounds are when you're looking at the x-ray. For antibiotics, most surgeons will agree that they would like antibiotics if the patient is going to require surgery. That's a level B recommendation. It's less clear if the patient should get antibiotics if they're not going to be operated on. Not giving antibiotics in this circumstance is a level C recommendation. The choice of oral versus IV antibiotics has no data at all, it seems like, so just pick your favorite. Taking into consideration the location of the wound, baseline neurovascular exams are going to be really important. If it's in a lower extremity, then an ankle brachial reflex could be helpful if there's any fear of vascular injury. And it's nice to keep in mind that about 70% of arterial injuries are going to have an associated nerve injury, since those like to travel together. In terms of you poking around at the site of the injury, maybe you just don't. Unless you're removing a symptomatic bullet that's just subcutaneous, then of course you should not sew up bullet holes. And then there's a level C recommendation to not routinely do formal irrigation and debridement of these wounds. Lastly, keep in mind that any retained bullets or fragments that are intra-articular, those ones are going to definitely have to come out. Other bullets, not necessarily. Overall, almost everything I've said is really based on low-quality evidence, but unfortunately that's all we have. In a spoonful, we definitely need more evidence on the treatment of low-velocity gunshot wounds to extremities. For now, the evidence-based recommendations are to start antibiotics if they're destined for surgery, and everything else was really weak evidence or none at all.
Then the second article titled The Association of Intravenous Radiocontrast with Kidney Function, a Regression Discontinuity Analysis out of the JAMA Internal Medicine. I know, guys, it's a really slow road, a battle towards not worrying so much about AKI when you just want to get a scan, but we'll get there eventually. Even radiologists think that it's okay most of the time. Here's another study to support not worrying about it. These authors did a well-designed study of 150,000 patients who had D-dimers measured. The typical cutoff for D-dimer positivity is 500 nanograms per ml. The authors hypothesized that these patients near the cutoff, either just below or above, would be very similar patients, except the fact that the patients who were above the cutoff would be much more likely to get a CTPA. So while this still isn't an RCT, so this isn't going to prove causality, there's still a very nice amount of information that we can get from the study because it's clever and this is strong evidence. The two groups above and below the D-dimer cutoff were very similar in terms of the measurable confounders. But most importantly was that there was no difference in the EGFRs at six months, despite those above the cutoff getting significantly more CTPAs, and thus more contrast exposure. Now, EGFR was the primary outcome, which isn't particularly patient-oriented, they don't care about a number, but there was also no difference in the need for dialysis, mortality, or AKIs between the groups. In a spoonful, this is just another reason to think that contrast nephropathy is fake news. (laughs) And this was a well-done and clever study providing us with what might be the best evidence we have to date. If you'd like to hear a little bit more about the methodology, then Rebelcast actually covered this article on their podcast a few weeks ago. They go into what it means to have a fuzzy regression discontinuity design to the study. It's interesting stuff. Then third, we have the article titled, Can Obstructive Urolithiasis Be Safely Excluded on Contrast CT? A Retrospective Analysis of Contrast-Enhanced and Non-Contrast CT out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. A lot of patients come to the ER with acute flank pain, and a common cause for this is urolithiasis, kidney stones. You'll probably start with an ultrasound, but really the gold standard test has been a non-contrast CT for a long time in order to diagnose obstructing urolithiasis. This works. It's an accurate test. But there are so many mimics of renal colic out there. Diverticulitis, appendicitis, cholecystitis, the list goes on and on. To make up about 60% of the patients who present with flank pain not having renal colic. So if the diagnosis isn't renal colic, then you'll want to have added contrast to your study so you have a better look at all the other pathologies that might be going on. So why not just start with a contrast CT in the first place? Is it accurate? Is it safe? Well, we just talked about whether or not it's safe. So is it accurate? This was a retrospective cohort of 1,300 patients with flank pain who received CT abdomen pelvis scans. They took 200 consecutive imaging studies from the non-contrast group and 200 consecutive studies from the contrast-enhanced group and then followed up on imaging within seven days from the original presentation to calculate the negative predictive value of each scan. This means that if a stone was missed on the first scan but then it was seen on the second scan done within a week, then the first scan was actually considered a false negative. If there was no follow-up, then they just used the results from the first scan. This design would skew the data towards being a little bit more accurate than you or I might see in the emergency department, since we're probably only going to see the patients at one time point, but still we could see them at the second, so it's it's still not bad. 
the results were a negative predicted value of 99.5% for non-contrast imaging and a negative predicted value of 100% for contrast-enhanced imaging. So given that more and more data shows the safety of contrast, also you're going to be exposing your patients to radiation anyways, keeping in mind that the contrast scan might be slightly better as a study, and then, of course, if you add contrast, well, you're going to get a better look at the rest of the abdomen anyways, and likely other pathologies. So, all those factors in mind, it's time maybe to consider a contrast-enhanced CTE abdomen pelvis as your go-to scan for a flank pain. In a spoonful, contrast-enhanced CTE had a 100% negative predictive value for obstructive urolithiasis in this retrospective study. Getting a contrast-enhanced CT would also improve your diagnostic yield for other acute pathologies, and so it might be worth considering as your test of choice. Then the fourth article, which was titled, The Association of Oral Corticosteroid Bursts with Severe Adverse Events in Children out of the JAMA Pediatrics. We've seen in studies before that short burst-dose steroids can be harmful in adults, increasing the incidence of GI bleeding, sepsis, and heart failure. Kids are tougher, though. Would we see similar things in children? This study was a large population-based study of over 4.5 million children followed over four years. Just over 1 million of these children were prescribed burst steroids, which were prescriptions for steroids of less than 14 days. So the incident rate ratios for some severe conditions seen within 5 to 30 days after starting the steroids were as follows. The incident rate ratio for GI bleeding was 1.41. For sepsis, it was 2.02. .02. For pneumonia, 2.19. And for glaucoma, 0.98. To simplify this, burst-dose steroids seem to double the incidence of some pretty serious complications. So when steroids are definitely indicated, like for severe asthma, severe pharyngitis, croup, or other serious illnesses, then the benefits of steroids are going to outweigh the harms. But in weak indications, like a common cold for some symptom relief, there's just no way that the benefit could outweigh the harm in that case. In a spoonful, burst-dose steroids were associated with significant increases in incidence of some serious complications. Then the last article, which was titled The Association of Ketamine Induction with Blood Pressure Changes in Paramedic Rapid Sequence Intubations of Out-of-Hospital Traumatic Brain Injury Patients, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. So many of you will be familiar with the near registry articles that associated ketamine with post-induction hypotension. Now, everyone's favorite Scott Weingard had a great conversation about these studies on MCRIT on February 9th of this year. The summary of that conversation was that there's too much potential for indication bias in the near database studies to make conclusions on ketamine and hypotension, especially when there's already an RCT on this subject from 2009, which showed that ketamine was as hemodynamically stable as etomidate. Weingart won't be happy about another low-quality study looking into this, but we'll cover it. This was a retrospective study from Australia of patients with presumed head injury who were intubated in the pre-hospital setting before and after the allowance of ketamine for induction, which happened for them in 2015. With about 800 patients in either group, the pre-2015 patients, they had 93 to 94% of the intubations done with fentanyl and midazolam. Whereas after 2015, 92% of the inductions were done with ketamine, more and more with ketamine every year. 
They found a 5% increase in post-intubation hypotension immediately following widespread use of ketamine in 2015. These rates then increased progressively as ketamine climbed in popularity. So after ketamine was introduced, the pre- and post-intubation systolic blood pressure dropped an average of 7.8 millimeters of mercury. Now, of course, this study is going to suffer from some of the same problems as the NEAR articles did. It's retrospective data, and it's trying to challenge the conclusions of a proper randomized control trial. But that same randomized control trial did see a drop in systolic blood pressure of 5 millimeters of mercury in the ketamine group. It just wasn't statistically significant, and that's more important from this group because they actually had randomized controls. So there's still no causal link here, and I think I'd personally want to see more RCT data before jumping to the other side of the fence on this one. Still though, I guess time will tell. In a spoonful, this retrospective study showed an association between ketamine and post-induction hypotension. And that's our five articles from the week. Let's do a quick review of everything that we covered. First off, we saw that low-velocity gunshot wounds to the extremities are mostly a no-evidence zone. In general, give antibiotics if they're going to go for surgery. And other than that, most things are mostly going to be left alone by you after you've done properly assessing the neurovascular damage. Second, no differences in long-term renal function were found in emergency department patients who received contrast for a CTPA compared to similar patients who were scanned less. This was really strong data against contrast-induced nephropathy. Third, the new gold standard test for urolithiasis should maybe be a contrast-enhanced CT rather than one without contrast, since contrast had a slightly better negative predictive value and improves the imaging of the rest of the abdomen. Fourth, burst dose steroids are not benign, doubling the incidence of sepsis and pneumonia in children, as well as increasing the rates of GI bleeding by half. And then the fifth article, more relatively low-quality data showing an association between ketamine and post-induction hypotension. Now that you've earned them, we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org where if you'd like to sign up to get the best way to learn, that is spaced repetition, then you can get our newsletter in your inbox every weekday morning. And then at the end of the week, go ahead, come here, listen to the podcast, and just really let those concepts sink in. Our goal here at The Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>